ओम ज्ञान you must come to conclusions about something. And then the next point you die, and then the consciousness moves on to a new body, as the other gentleman was talking about, and then the baby's body, which lost knowledge. Why, was, why is this, does that happen? Did everyone get the question? Yeah. No, really. Okay. Well, this is described in Srimad Bhagavatam, we get different bodies according to our activities in previous lives under the direction of God and His representatives. Now, to answer that question, we have to understand why we're in this material world. We're in this why are we here in this position of suffering? Because we have chosen to avoid our position of spiritual realization, our position of service to Krishna, and therefore we are in this material world. So basically we've come here to, with the idea of enjoying separately from Krishna. And we get body after body after body trying to enjoy separately from Krishna. Now, your question supposes that everyone is on a spiritual quest. Yeah, but most most people are not on a spiritual quest. Yeah, but if, if we actually acquire spiritual knowledge, that is never lost. That even though we're born again, you see, we're a mixed bag. Someone who's on a spiritual quest, as long as they're not fully successful, then they still have some material desires. That's why they get born again. If they're fully successful, then they don't get born again. So when we get born, we get born with the desire, some desires to enjoy this world. And if we've made spiritual advancement, the desire for spiritual advancement is there also. So at a certain point, that knowledge will become reawakened. Tatra-tang-buddhi-sang-yogam. Nabhante-purva-dehikam. That's stated in Bhagavad Gita. That the imperfect yogi, he's tried, he's not successful, he has material desires, he gets born again, but at some point in time, during his next life, then knowledge, whatever knowledge he's, or realization that he's acquired in a previous life, that will again become apparent to him. And practically we see that, that just like we are preaching Krishna consciousness, and we preach the same thing basically to everyone. We're not this body, the body is temporary, we're eternal spirit soul, due to material desire we are getting body after body after body. Some people when they hear that, it hits them. They take it up, they think yes, now I have to live my life in such a way that I don't get born again. And for other people, 
They think about it a little bit and go on with their life. But other people, it hardly touches them at all. It's according to the level of realization. So, actual spiritual knowledge is never lost. It may become dormant for some time. According to the cycle of birth and death, as long as we're in the material world, we have to go through these six phases in every birth. There's birth, then we grow a little bit, uh, we, we go through birth and childhood, then adulthood, then we ourselves have children, then we grow old and then we die. Like that, there, there's a cycle, as long as we're in material life, this cycle goes on, but actual spiritual knowledge is not lost. What to speak of that, even material knowledge, we may carry that over life after life. Just like you find someone, Mozart, he was composing music at the age of five or something like that. That's a skill that was, or a talent that's carried on from a previous life. Our spiritual master said that John Lennon, he was a Gandharva in his previous life. Gandharva means in the higher planets, there are persons who are just naturally from birth. That means from their previous lives, they inherit the ability to be brilliant musicians. So our spiritual master said that John Lennon in a previous life, he was in that planet of the musicians. So his even material knowledge is carried on. But spiritual knowledge, that is eternal. Material, Mozart may have been Mozart in one life and then maybe in the next life he lost it. Because material knowledge doesn't stay. But spiritual knowledge is like a bank account that you can, it's always deposited, it's never lost. It's a permanent asset. So that goes on developing. But side by side, there's, a, there's mixed up with our material desires and karmas. It's very complex. As Lord Krishna states in Bhagavad Gita, that to understand karma, it's very complex. You can go to an astrologer, he's a good astrologer, he can tell you what you were in your previous life, he can tell you what you are in this life, he can tell you what will come in future, but it's very difficult to say exactly. Because at every moment, we're thinking something, we're doing something, we're burning off some previous karmas, and we're creating new karmas. So it's very, very complex. There are any other questions? Oh, you also had a question. All right. If you're patient enough, you can wait. You bring the book table here. You bring the book table here. Shift the spot. Could you give me some water? Yeah. Who's? Someone's going to ask something. What? Yeah. Yes. Uh, the previous gentleman said. Uh, uh, life is tough. <coughs> life is tough, and then we die. And he meant that as a kind of a release, release from the kind of uh, times that we live in which birth. Can you go a little deeper into that? Life is tough, and then you die. Well, dying isn't really a relief. It's just a uh, changing trains. <laughs> I think that the point he was making is that when he's saying life is tough, it's mean that we're struggling and struggling and struggling to try and get some enjoyment, but then whatever we've struggled for just finishes anyway. 
you, you struggle to build up some big business, you work hard, and then you get, you get a big business empire, and then the whole thing, then you have, you can't bring one dime with you. So, so you, you start, what you end up with is what you start with. You start with, actually we have nothing, it's just an illusion to think I have anything. So the point, the point he's making is that, what do, why are we struggling for material enjoyment anyway? Because it's so difficult to get anything, and then when you do get it, it's, you lose it. So better to endeavor for spiritual realization, by which we get the full relief, eternal relief, of not getting born again. I presume that's the point he was trying to make. Hare Krishna. I've noticed that please, uh, please speak in, the in uh, chanting the Maha Mantra, uh, much transformation takes place. I've also noticed that in devotee association, much transformation takes place. And there are times when uh, there's an opportunity for devotee association that's rare, like today, where, uh, you know, I might not chant my 16 rounds. <laughs> And uh, I'd just like to hear from you that that's, that's okay. Well, you'd like to hear from me, but Srila Prabhupada didn't say it was okay. Best thing to do on a festival day, get up real early, chant your rounds, and then participate in everything else. Chanting, we can never underestimate the importance of chanting. Haran Nama, Haran Nama, Haran Nama, Eva Kedavan. Kalonya, Stephen, 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 Katiran Yatan. In this age of Kali, there is no other way, no other way, no other way for, to reach the ultimate destination, Krishna's abode, other than by chanting, chanting, chanting the names of Krishna. So it's not optional, it's essential for spiritual progress, for progress in Krishna consciousness. When devotees told Prabhupada they didn't have time for chanting, they're so busy, Prabhupada wouldn't tell them to do less service, he'd tell them to sleep less and eat less, make time for chanting. That was Prabhupada's solution. Anyone else, please? Right Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, You can sit if you like, there are seats. Sit comfortably. Um, I have been a Krishna devotee since last year. Yeah, go on. I'm listening. And I go to the Krishna Prabhupada. I really like to listen to Srila Prabhupada lectures. And he really impresses me much. But I even try to chant Krishna's name and it gives me a lot of peace. But every time I try to be a committed devotee, I'm like, eh, no. I don't know why. I really want to be a committed devotee like you or like other devotees I've been associated with. And it is an immense pleasure to be with the devotee association because I've never found a big family or happy family like the Krishna family that we have in temples. But I still, whenever I try to become a very committed devotee, something happens when I get up. Like every time I have some suffering, I'm like, I don't think Krishna likes me. I don't think he wants me to be in his association. 
Well, we don't think Krishna likes you, but I know Krishna loves you. You want to be a committed devotee? You mean like living in the temple like that? That's not necessary for everyone. It may not even be recommended for everyone. Yeah, yeah, but we have to understand that it's for most it's going to be a gradual process. And even for those who are living in temples, it's also a gradual process because even if you live as a monk, it doesn't mean that by living as a monk you automatically become free from all material desires. It's uh, becoming a monk is a commitment to seriously endeavor to overcome material desires and to surrender to Krishna. But it, it, changing the cloth doesn't change the heart. So, you can stay at home and chant Hare Krishna and associate with devotees and make progress, but commitment has to be there, either as a monk or in what you might call regular life, that commitment has to be there. We hesitate to commit to Krishna because we are attached to material desires. Those material attachments should be overcome by hearing about the nature of reality from devotees who speak on the basis of Shastra. Tatodu Sangam Utsrija Satsu Sajjeta Buddhimam Santa Evasya Chindanti Manobya Sangam Uktibhi Lord Krishna recommends that an intelligent person should give up bad association. Don't cultivate bad association. We can't think that we're going to become Krishna conscious if we're deliberately cultivating things which won't make us Krishna conscious, like watching TV and reading all kinds of books and magazines which have nothing to do with self-realization. We have to make a commitment to give up bad association. And associate with devotees, and he specifically said that devotees, they will speak in such a way that they will cut the material attachments that is required. Krishna loves you. We have to cultivate our reciprocal feelings of love with Krishna. But love means commitment also. It's not, love is not a hobby. It's not a, it's not a part-time engagement. It's not like a, like a TV, you turn it on and turn it off. Love means 24 hours, 7 days a week, up throughout life, up to the point of death and beyond, forever. That's real love. Full commitment, non-stop. That love is love for Krishna. So, that can be had if we commit to Krishna. But to commit to Krishna requires the faith to do so. We're influenced by everything around us to think that everything in this material world is, is worth attaining. It's worth trying to be happy in this material world. That's why we have to hear from devotees who speak from the other side of the curtain of reality. 
They speak from the, they speak from the spiritual world and give us information of that. And by hearing about that, we get a desire to also develop the same consciousness. Any more questions, please? We've got some books. Please read these books. Read more and more. Namaste Prabhuji, I want to know about the surrenderance to Krishna. What is what you are saying Krishna consciousness is same as uh, the surrenderance are we calling uh, our language Saranavish. Sri Krishna Saranam Mama. Yeah. Uh, it's so same. Teacher. Pardon me? You're from Gujarat. No. Oh. no. I'm Guj- from Hyderabad. I see. In okay. Gujarat they especially say Sri Krishna Saranam Mama. Yeah, I know but uh, Saranagati. Yeah, Saranagati. This is the same our uh, Yeah. Yeah. How to uh, face the difficulties in material world and surrender to Krishna completely? But sometimes I feel very difficult mm-hmm. to surrender Him. Sometimes I'm afraid of, you know, um, I can't explain it. Uh, what happens to me? Uh, the, the same problem she told you. Right, I'm please. in the same state. So what does it mean to surrender to Krishna? We use this term. Mahamekam Sharanam Raja Lord Krishna says to surrender to me. What does this mean? Do you have Srila Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita as it is? Have you read this verse, Bhagavad Gita? Mahamekam Sharanam Raja In that report, Srila Prabhupada quotes the classic definition of Sharanagati, surrender. That definition is Anukulyasya Sankalpa Pratikulyasya Vajanam Rakshishyatiti Vishvasa Vantritve Varanam Tata Agnamikshepa Kalpanya Sharadupa Sharanagati So the first words are Anukulyasya Sankalpa What is Anukul? What is favorable for developing bhakti? We have to make a commitment, sankalp. Sankalp commitment is required. Like I say, it's not a hobby. Spiritual life is not a hobby. We have to be very serious and make a commitment. If we think that, I'll do a little today and then tomorrow I'll see what I feel like, it's not going to happen. So commitment is required. And the commitment to do whatever is required for advancing in bhakti, then automatically, side by side with that comes Pratikulyasya Vajanam. That whatever is destructive to bhakti, whatever is an obstacle in bhakti, we have to be prepared to give that up. Now, that's a big commitment. But that is what is required. So, if we feel afraid to do so, I feel afraid, it means we're we have faith in our material attachments. We don't have faith that Krishna will protect us. But Lord Krishna, that comes next. Rakshishatiti Vishvasa. We should have faith that Krishna will protect us. How do we have that faith? We have to hear from devotees. We can hear about Prahlad Maharaj, how he was protected. It appeared that he was in an impossible situation, that he had firm faith in Krishna. Krishna will protect us also. 
we, we can hear about Ambarish Maharaj, who made no endeavor to protect himself, but Krishna protected him. The whole Srimad Bhagavatam is full of narrations of devotees who are protected and maintained by Krishna. That is the next statement. Krishna will protect us. We have faith that I, I have to work hard and get money and I look after myself, but ultimately Krishna is protecting us. That is the faith of the devotees. And Atmanik Shepa, it literally means to throw ourselves at Krishna. That attitude that I, I don't belong in this world, I don't belong to anyone, I'm throwing myself at the lotus feet of Krishna. And Kaipanya, one has to be very humble. These are the elements of surrender. How can we imbibe this when the whole material world is going against that, especially probably more than any other city in the world? New York is a, a city dedicated to the individual, rugged individual, Stanley, I, you know, I don't kowtow to anyone, I'm okay, I'm looking after myself. It's just the opposite of the humility that is required to admit that I am dependent upon Krishna, that, hu that humility to surrender to Him. So how can we imbibe this mood when we have to, same thing, we have to associate with devotees. We have to understand that my pos the, pos the position I'm in is not very good. I may show I'm very great, I'm very wonderful, stand up very proudly, but we're all kicked down by the material energy. Some years ago, uh, I met a sannyasi, he was old, he was a disciple of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswatthaka. He must have passed away by now. He was about 80. So, he told me that wherever I go, I have, to, I have a stick in one hand and I have to have my hand on someone else's shoulder. Because I'm old now. But he told me, you can see I'm not big and strong, my body's not big and strong. He said, when I was your age, I could pick up three or four people like you and throw them to the other side of the room. He used to be a wrestling champion. But now I need your help to just to walk to the other side of the room. So that's it. When we're young, we're, we would... We were saying, yeah, I'm, I'm big, I'm strong, I can do whatever, no one can stand in my way. But eventually, time wears down our energy, and uh, we don't even have strength to... When you're old, you may not even have strength to hold your urine in such a, such a horrible position. You, just like a child, you, you urinate involuntarily. So, this is the kind of thing we have to hear that this is material life. It's not much fun, actually. That understanding of the, material, the, the misery of material life, that is not in itself spiritual life, but it forms a basis on which we can give up our attachments to this material world and understand that my real happiness is not by foolishly trying to show myself as being something very great, but very intelligently accepting that I am very small, I am completely dependent upon Krishna. And on that basis, 
making the sankalpa or the commitment, the determination to do whatever is required to develop my consciousness of Krishna. So it's a commitment based on knowledge. That knowledge we get by hearing from devotees regularly. Uh, at the Krishna Temple, uh, are we having any uh, group sessions for people like us to discuss in weekends? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you live? Uh, upstate Westchester. Upstate Westchester. I'm not sure if there's any anyone here from New York, New York State, the Maldives, or this one. Rami? Yeah. We we do live in upstate New York. But I'm not sure if they're having Westchester. We're going to find out. In other places there are. Association is most essential. Satsangha. We have in Hyderabad, you must know. Seven years. Well, we've had our center there since 1976. Albany is near there? Albany, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think we have something there. Albany is, Albany is, Albany has a pretty good city. Yeah. I want, maybe it is far from the place. have been going on 
at least since the time of Christ himself. The early Christians believed that the coming of Christ was just round the corner. And it's been going on ever since. And uh, at, any, at any point in the history of the Western world, there have been religious believers who are convinced that the, the end of the world is nigh, that it's coming in just a few days or a few years. And we know that before, just at the end of the 20th century, so many people are saying there are going to be earth shifts and Y2K. And so, like I said, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but I'm just taking it day by day and chanting Hare Krishna. There can be a major shift in our own lives, that's maybe more important. Well, there may be, just there, there are major changes in the world, maybe not as major as, as earth shifts or major cataclysms, but just like uh, America in the last 400 years, it's gone through a lot of change, hasn't it, from what it used to be. Britain, in my, I'm, I was born in Britain, so in my father's, in my father's life, Britain has gone from being the, the major world power to, you know, another tiddlywink of the United Nations. Maybe a little bit of a tiddlywink than others. So, yeah, there is a lot of change, but basically, life for the individual goes on. We're born, we live for some time, we struggle, we try to enjoy life, we don't enjoy, and then we die. So the real change that we can affect is of ourselves. And if there is a big world change to come, there's nothing that we can do to stop it. And if it doesn't come, it won't make any difference to us anyway. So why don't we concentrate on the really important thing, which is change of heart. That's what we can do. That's something we can work on. You know, a lot of people talk about revolution or this and major changes in society. Maybe society is always changing, but the real, the real thing we can work on changing is ourselves. And if we change ourselves for the better, then we can help others also. So let's work on purification of heart. That comes by chanting the holy names of God. This Y2K thing, I mean, I went to sleep on the January the 31st, 1999, at the same time I usually go to sleep, about 10 o'clock. We get up early, about 3 o'clock. And, you know, I slept in the morning and got up in the morning. And after some time I realized, after switching the light on, after some time I realized that it wasn't supposed to be on, according to some people. I didn't take it very seriously. There are so many doomsday sayers. There are whole religions based on that, right? There have been all religious cults based on the belief that the world is going to end in three years' time and they count down, count down, count down, and it doesn't happen, so... It's maybe good for getting people to commit themselves on a short term, but it's... It's more important to know the actual philosophy of life. It's a kind of fanaticism to, to base our whole belief on 
who felt that the world's going to end in two years, one and a half years, and only we will be saved and everyone will be doomed. It's, to me it seems kind of childish. <laughs> Any other questions? Based in uh, my religion for the age that I have, and what do you think about um, as belief of, of my religion and changing your religion? How do you do, or how you can do to change mine, so I can try another kind of religion? Because mine is like, I'm sometimes I feel like lost. Well, you ask about changing beliefs, but there's no value in changing beliefs. And there's not much value in belief either. What is valuable is fact. You may believe that 2 plus 2 equals 5, but try building a bridge based on wrong arithmetic. It's not going to work, is it? You have to know what the fact is. So. Someone may believe in God, and someone may not believe in God, and someone may believe God is like this, and someone may believe God is like that, but what we believe doesn't make any difference to reality. If there is God, then He exists, and if there isn't, He doesn't exist, and believing or not believing is not going to change anything. And if there, if there is God, He has His own nature, and what we believe isn't going to change it. It's not that because today I believe God is like this and then tomorrow I change my belief that God has to change. So, belief is not very valuable. We should come to the platform of fact. Belief means when we don't know. Now, I'm saying we, if we believe in God, but obviously, I do. But that belief shouldn't be a blind belief. How can we... How can we place our whole, our whole life on a blind belief? So, our belief or acceptance in God is based on not blind faith, but intelligent faith. Where's that shoulder bag of mine? I'm going to give this example. I've given this example many times. Have you got that steel glass? Is it in there? I'm going to give a little demonstration by which we can intelligently understand the existence of God. Put a little water in. No, no, the other one. I've done this hundreds of times. We're going to have a little scientific investigation into the existence of God here. Okay. All right, this is what in India is called a steel glass. I know what it's called in America. What's it called? A steel cup or something like that? Still cup, okay. See, it has water in it, right? No magic. This is all, no hocus pocus. This is an intelligent demonstration of the existence of God. Hare Krishna. Alright, now, you all saw that, right? I'm not going to pull any rabbits out of it. This is a steel cup with water in it. Now, please consider. How much intelligence has gone into making this? This is made from steel, I presume. Looks like it, stainless steel. Now, to make that steel, someone discovered that by mixing iron with a certain admixture of carbon in a certain process, 
You make stainless steel. So someone discovered that. That required quite a lot of intelligence, right? And then how to find the iron ore, how to extract it, which kind of iron ore deposits are economically viable to mine, and then how to process it, build factories, make the steel, how to make this. Can you just hold that a second? How to make this, it's very well designed that you see it fits on so you can take it off without having to really strain and it's not so loose that it falls off easily, it's just the right size, you see? There's water in there, it doesn't fall out. It's very well designed. And who des the person who designed it, they designed it for mass production, they had to make a machine, and then, um, and then the, the, the uh, manufacturer, he was considering profit and loss, how many we should make in one batch, and then shipping, wholesaling, retailing, and then I went and I looked at it and I thought, is it good? Yeah, that's about the right size. So, just on this one little steel cup, you could write hundreds of books. There's so much intelligence. And on different levels you can also analyze what is the molecular structure, the atoms, the electrons. You could write, you could spend your whole life writing dozens of books about this. And this is something pretty simple, isn't it? To bring it into being required so much intelligence. So if we think that the whole universe has come into being by chance, what would you, I would call that blind, foolish faith. Even the, when I was a kid at school in the biology class, they taught that the cell is a simple organism and very soon we'll understand everything about it and we'll be able to re reproduce them in the laboratory. So I wrote this and I, I got marks in my biology test. If I wrote the same answer nowadays, I'd get failed. Because nowadays they say, well, this, the, even the simplest cell is far more complex than, it's, than anything, than even the biggest modern city, and we, we can't hope to understand it even in decades. It's, even the, the simplest cell is so complex. Now, if I told you now, wait a minute, let's, let's take a step back. How much do you think this costs? Any guesses? Anyone like to guess? Three bucks. That's about, uh, let's see, 135 rupees. It's bought in India. Things are a lot cheaper there. 50 it was probably about 50 rupees, about one dollar. Yeah, okay. Now, I probably got this from a shop, right? Bought it in a shop for about 50 rupees. Now, if I told you that actually... Uh, in my backyard, actually I don't have a house, but presuming I have a house. In my house, in the backyard, there was a bunch of garbage, and one day there was a big storm, and right before my eyes I saw all the garbage blowing together, and it formed this. Would you believe me? No. Why? Because you're not dumb. Right? So if I told you the whole universe came into being, there was a big bang. And it just, by chance, everything fell into place, and it's, it's so extremely complex that scientists are, scientists are studying it for thousands of years, well, at least hundreds of years, and they still can't work out how even the most simple cell works. They still can't define what is life, and there are two, among astrophysicists, there are two thousand, more than 2,000 theories of the origin of the universe. 
How many astrophysicists do you think there are in the world? Probably not more than 2,000 anyway. You know what that means? They don't know what they're talking about. They're intelligent, no doubt, but they're intelligently trying to prove how 2 plus 2 equals 5. They're intelligently foolish. So, if anyone says that there's no, there's no design, there's no intelligence, there's no God in control, they're just plain damn stupid, even if they have a Nobel Prize. Sorry folks, but that's the way it is. It doesn't make any sense. It's not blind faith to believe in God. It's intelligent. It's unintelligent to think that there's no God in control. So, the point is, it's not a question of you're asking about belief systems. But belief means you don't know. But okay, if we accept that there is God, and we have the tendency to believe in Him, now there are some modern scientists, so-called scientists, who, who they've written books called, what's that called, the... I can't, can't remember. I wouldn't have made it as a scientist. I'm not so intelligent. I can't even remember the name of a simple book. The God Syndrome, by Richard Dawson, I think it was. God Delusion. The God Delusion, that's right. Who said that? The God Delusion. So his theory is that in the course of human evolution, which is another, you know, imagination, that living beings have come into being by chance, that uh, at some point some genes got reproduced, the gene by which we believe in God. And it's like, it's something that went wrong in evolution, but anyway it's going on. But which gene, how does it work? It's just his imagination. He hasn't identified any gene, but he's just desperate to try to prove that there's re religious belief is a kind of biological aberration. So that's not very scientific. I mean, if he says there's such... A, if he says that there's such a gene which makes us believe in God, well, show us where it is. Where about which gene? Where is it? Isolate it. Show it. If scientists say that life is a product of matter, then okay, Mr. Scientist, you take your billions of dollars of research, uh, what's it called? Grants. Research grants. And, uh, you know, stop, stop using your research and your intelligence for working how to blow people up and chemically poison them en masse. And why don't you make some life? You know, make a spider or a blade of grass or something. They can't do it. They can't even produce one cell. They can't even describe a cell. So what's called science, it's, a lot of it's a lot of bluff, actually. So belief in God, why believe? It's, we can say believe, all right, you haven't seen it. Have you been to China by any chance? No. There's no such place as China. You believe that? No. It's, it's an intelligent belief to believe that such a place as China. Not to believe in it is pretty stupid, right? Even if you haven't been there. Someone can come along and we can start the No China Society. There's no such place as China. All those uh, Nike shoes you get with Made in China, it's all a bluff. The whole of the world has conspired against you to make you believe that there's a place called China, but it's just a big bluff. 
Well, there are people with cookie ideas like that, but they're just cookie ideas. Why should you believe them? So, when we say belief in God, why believe? Why not just accept it? But then if there is God, then, and we have the desire to believe in him, unless we believe in Richard Dawson and it's just a delusion, why should we believe in him? We could just as easily say that there's a gene that makes you an atheist. So, if there's God, and we find in cultures all over the world, thank you, that people at various levels of cultural development have the tendency to believe in God. Here's another idea. During the Soviet regime in, in the USSR, for three or four generations, there was programming, don't believe in God. So if atheism was actually logical, then out of, and if, as Marx said, that religion is just some kind of opiate, it's some kind of delusion, simply to bluff people, then after four generations of Soviet rule, then everyone should have very logically and very cool-headedly understood that there's no God. But as soon as Glasnost came, the whole of the USSR, they, people were anxious to to find out about God and religion. Why is that? Is that because of a of God delusion because of some wrongly mutated gene? Or is it because that as basically spiritual beings, we all have a need for God, just like, where's water? I have a need to drink some water. I feel thirsty that, that there's a need for water. So the body needs water. The soul, no, some, where is that? I was just showing it as a demonstration. Anyway. The soul needs God. So, if there's God, then He communicates to us. And the communication is through Scripture and through His representatives. The Scriptures and His representatives appear in human society in different ages of man, and they speak according to people's ability to receive and hear. So their mess and their message also tends to get mutated by people. Marx was right in one sense that religion is the opiate of the people because it can be misused and often has been. And the history of religion is often not very beautiful. And the misuse of religion is terrible. Oh, but that doesn't mean that religion in itself is bad. Anything can be misused. TV, what a great opportunity for to uplift human society, but it's become the idiot box. Because people uh, people want to uh, exploit others through that medium. So misuse of religion doesn't mean there's no God. So the point, you want to change your belief. Well, we don't say change your belief, but we, we would say that come to the platform of fuller knowledge. If your religious path leaves you feeling confused, then you're not properly connecting with God. You need to connect with Him in, in uh, a manner that fully satisfies the soul. Practically every religion in the world got it wrong, if you don't mind me saying so. Because they mostly, everyone thinks of God or what, as 
someone who we pray to who fulfills our desires. But actually it should be around the other way. That he is the person, the person, yeah, the person. He's intelligent, he designed everything, and that means he's a person, and he has personal feelings. So we are meant to satisfy him. Not that you pray to God to get a better car, or to solve your legal problems. That's not love. It's just like a child, if a child is always asking the parent, give me this, give me that. After some time, the child is supposed to grow up and think, of what can I do for my parents? So that's just a rough example, but we are meant for offering our love to Him. The relationship of love is not based on just give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. What can we offer to Him? What satisfies Him? So all, all music, all dance, all drama, all activities, everything we do, everything we eat, everything should be offered for His pleasure. That is Krishna consciousness. We should know who He is. We're going to love God, we should know who is He. How can you love someone if you don't know who they are, what they like? If you love someone, you want to offer them something, but what, what are you going to offer if you don't know what they like? So we have to offer him what he likes, we have to know. So that religion is more developed, which gives us knowledge of God, and knowledge of how to approach him in a manner that he'll actually be satisfied. Any other questions, please? Yeah, please take this. Sir, I have a follow-up question to what you were talking about earlier, and uh, uh, pardon me if I uh, seem disrespectful in any way. I just wanted to follow up on your, your uh, explanation on the existence of God. Mm. Uh, from what I understand, the way you explained it is by rejecting the hypothesis that this world cannot be created by quote-unquote chance. Uh, but as we have learned in uh, hypothesis-based testing, by proving a, a counter-argument, this proving a counter-argument does not prove the fact That's true. that we could say that there is a God who looks like this, who has these characteristics, who has these kind of personalities, this kind of lifestyle, and has uh, documented stories for all of that. I mean, we do not have proof. Uh, in, I mean, and as you said, uh, we, we have to go by belief. Uh, I don't know about intelligent or unintelligent, but it comes down to believe whether you have uh, faith in God. Right, right. I do not see, a, I have yet to see the fa uh, factual uh, evidence for God. We have documented miracles all around the world, but uh, some of them have been busted as a mere scientific uh, um, happenings which have been unknown to us. And uh, follow to another point of yours. Can we take one at a time? That's a pretty big hump to start with. Okay, so let me just ask you a follow-up question to that. I think you can answer both of them at the same time. Um, you disregarded intelligent design, saying that all of this cannot happen by chance. Um, a simple question that... No, I didn't disregard it. I, I was speaking in favor of it. Okay, so... He, intelligent design means God. I'm sorry, uh, the, the evolution or uh, uh, happening by chance is not a very... Or Big Bang or anything like big that. Big Bang, I understand so, so it begs the question, um, uh, we assume that God is more intelligent and complex than any one of us. If, if, uh, if, uh, if we cannot be created by chance, then, uh, and we have to be created by an intelligent supreme being, then who created God? Thank you. That's a kind of question. Thank you.
It's true that debunking the idea that everything has come into being by chance doesn't in and of itself prove that everything has come into being by intelligent design. But then what's the other alternative? Well, we, reality is black and white. I mean, we do exist. We, we do exist. So, philosophy means to try to, to, to understand existence. So, how, how are we here? The commonly propagated theory is that everything has come into being by chance. And you say either it's black and white. It doesn't have to be black and white. But either, either it's come into being by chance, or it hasn't. You, there's no in-between situation. Yeah, is there? We haven't discovered all that there is to be discovered yet. In the human well, uh, that's, that's, saying that is on the basis of presuming that, every, that we can discover everything. So but we, but, uh, again the point, were you there for the design? Yeah. 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 So, yeah, you were there for the steel glass thing. Yes. So, the point, even something very simple requires design. It requires intelligence. So, something more complex should require more intelligence. It does. It begs the intelligence to consider that everything. That something complex can come into being by chance when something, even something as simple as a steel cup, requires so much intelligence to bring it into being. That's pretty logical, right? That's not blind faith. The shirt that you're wearing, no one would believe it came into being by chance. It was designed with intelligence. Designed. It's it's a specific form for a specific purpose, which it it fulfills the purpose. Someone made it to fulfill a specific purpose, which it does. It requires intelligence to do that. So, and the more complex something is, the more intelligence and endeavor is required. So, if even such a simple thing as a shirt requires intelligence to make it, then what to speak of the universe, which is so much more complex. If it, so much more complex than a shirt, so it suggests that there is an intelligent person behind it. Intelligence means a person. And there's a purpose. It's a proposition, but it fits. Just like uh, in science there are, there are propositions, and, and then if it fits, you follow it. There, there are so many things, if you say you want proof, well, what do you accept as proof? Prove that there are electrons, and what would you accept as proof? A reasonable explanation. Okay, so this is a reasonable explanation of the existence of the universe. If someone designed it and put it into place. It's reasonable. It's not unreasonable. You, you don't see electrons. You don't see the mind for that matter. But you accept that it exists. It's, it's difficult to define what the mind is. You can't see it. You can't see it. But we all accept that it exists. Why do we accept? Because it's reasonable to do so. The effect of the mind is experienced by all of us. So, just like that, someone could say, that proves that there are electrons, but you have to be trained to 
to even understand the proof, isn't it? And, and even that proof, it's, it's based more on uh, extrapolation from observed phenomena and mathematical formula. But you have to be trained to understand that. It's not a layman's job. So in the same way, the spirit is subtle. God is, it's not, he's not, although he's everywhere, he's not manifest without training to see that. It requires training. So, what was your question? That saying that there's, no, wait a minute, there was one question before that. I was just arguing about how you get to that conclusion of uh, since this is not is not true, therefore God must have done it. Yeah, well, it, yeah, yeah, well, there's more to it than that. Now, the question, who created God? Well, if anyone created him, then he's not God. But as you said, <coughs> right, as you said, everything well, has to be created. Everything is created. And that supposes that there's, a, there's an infinite regression of creators. But that's a logical impossibility also. In this material world, we can, we can give a material example of the sun and the sunshine. Now, this universe isn't permanent, but at least from our perspective in this tiny little blip of time that we call our lifetime, the sun appears to be permanent. So the sun rays, they exist simultaneously with the sun. They are produced from the sun, and the sun keeps on giving them out, giving them out, giving out the sun rays. So the sun is the source of all light within the universe. In the same way, God is the original source of everything. And if you say someone created him, then you will say, well, who created that creator? And it goes on and on and on. But it's a, it's a logical impossibility that there's an infinite regression. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a material example. We give material examples, we give analogies to help us to try to understand. We give analogies to try to express something that we can easily understand to help us to understand something which is more difficult. But do you understand the whole universe is going to collapse at one point? The universe at some point will collapse. Modern science predicts that. It's also stated in scripture. It's not proved. Scientists, science can't prove that, but they suppose that. For that matter, you can't prove anything. Prove, prove rests on some axioms. Can you prove that you exist? If I, if I demand to believe it, I could say, well, you're ju what? You're just a big illusion in front of me. So we, we, everyone, to live in this world, to accept anything, we begin with some axioms. We all have faith. You just sat down on that chair, right? You had faith that it would, support you. You never knew it. It might have just collapsed. When we walk on the road, we just put one foot in front of the other. We have faith that this, the earth in front of us will support us. Now, it's it's not... That's uh, faith. It's not blind faith. It's reasonable faith. 
that is faith. We accept it as axiomatic that the earth will support us. And any proof, we have to start with some axioms. Just like you, I, I can say, well, I don't believe anything you say because I don't believe you exist. I can say, I don't believe I exist. But we have to start somewhere. And actually, we're trying to say, talk logically about the existence of God, but ultimately, our logic is not, we, we can understand, okay, the, everything's existing, some must have put it there, there must be some reason. But, oh, that was another point you wanted to make, we can't extrapolate that to his personality, his characteristics, and all this. Yeah, that's true. By a logical analysis, we can accept that there is God. But what does he look like? What is what kind of a person he is? That we cannot get by logic. For that we need scripture. Scripture is his communication with us. Just like I have come to the United States of America. I came from England a few days ago. Now I happen to know that the president of America of the United States at the present time, his name is George Bush. And most people in the world probably know that because, you know, it's a big position in the world. But say I came here and I didn't know that George Bush was the president. And from, I'm not talking politics here, I'm just giving you an example. I just, you know, maybe, it's about, maybe I should give uh, the example of Lithuania or some small country. I'm just trying to give an example here. So, uh, Okay, I was in Finland a few days ago, and I don't know what system of government they have there, it's somewhat socialistic. I don't know what the president, if they have a president, what his name is. But having gone there, I presume that there's some system of government, and that there's someone at the head of the government. It makes sense, right? Uh, I don't know his name. Logically, I can presume that there is a head of state. What his name is, or his or her name is, what he likes to eat for breakfast, what his pet peeves are, what sports he likes, I have not the faintest idea, either before I went to Finland, when I was there, or since I left. But presumably, there is such a person, and he has got a name, and he does have a favorite breakfast, and I probably wouldn't want to eat it myself, because, you know, I'm a vegetarian, he probably isn't. And uh, what he looks like, I have no idea. But if I wanted to find out, I could find out. Not by logic. That there is a president or whatever, head of state of Finland, you can understand logically, because it's required in every state. But what his personality is, it's going to vary from president to president. So George Bush probably likes a different breakfast to uh, Bill Clinton. So you get the point that there is God, that far we can go with logic. But then what he looks like, what his name is, what he likes to eat, that's his own personal characteristics. So that we have to find, he can tell us, that's scripture. Any other questions please? I'll try and answer to the best of my ability. According to what I've learned. I'd like to make a request to everyone present. 
whether you believe or you don't believe, please say Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Krishna Krishna. Hare Hare. Hare Rama. Hare Rama. Rama Rama. Hare Hare. So you just made lots of spiritual advancements, whether you believe it or not. Even if you don't believe, even if you didn't chant just by hearing that, you make so much spiritual advancement. You can all please chant every day at least once this Maha Mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Now if you believe in it, you can understand these are the names of God and that you will progress tremendously spiritually. And if you don't believe in it, you can chant anyway because if you don't believe there's any God, then what did you lose? And just as a, you know, just in case, you can chant anyway. You didn't lose anything. But if, you know, just in case that 1%, you got that mutated gene in you, which makes you believe in God. So just in case there is a God, and you're an atheist and you're going to hell, you can chant Hare Krishna and save yourself from hell. Just in case. You didn't lose anything. What's your question, please? The lady is going to answer, ask a question. Hi, Christian. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, um, because I've been in the movement for all my life. I've been raised this way. I've been raised vegetarian. And it's been up until recently that I've been starting to research a little more into dairy farms and like where we're getting our milk from and it makes me like just so sad to hear about Krishna's favorite animal being so badly treated and so I'm wondering because I'm, I'm kind of confused right now like what the devotee's position is on like dairy in general like I know it's Krishna's favorite food but how if we're how protecting society how can we like yeah know, yeah let's talk about it Thank you. Hare Krishna. Yeah. Yes, Srila Prabhupada, the founder of this movement in the West, wanted to found farm communities where devotees could live, chant Hare Krishna, live peacefully, look after the cows. We haven't done that. That's a failing of our society. Is that, well, it's a failure. Yeah, it's a failure. But it can be done still. It's not that we can't do it. Um, he also said that we could, because milk is important food for us, we could take milk from the slaughter farms. But nowadays, there are, the organic milk is available. And I presume, do they kill organic cows also? They also kill them in the end. It's miserable, isn't it? Okay, go to the farm. That's my advice. Our movement, admittedly, we have great philosophy, but we haven't demonstrated it as much as we should have done to the world. So, there's still time, but we should get our act together. I mean, we do. It's a great festival. What do you think? I mean, I think it's a great festival. I'm a visitor here also. I arrived in New York this morning, and I'm leaving... Supposed to leave, what, 10 minutes ago? Yeah. So, great 
festivals, great food. We have a lot of work to do to demonstrate how people can live simply and practically and chant Hare Krishna and live a better life without killing the cows. Modern society is horrible. It looks nice, but it's based on animal slaughter. Millions, literally millions of animals and birds and fish are killed every day. Unnecessarily. No need to eat meat. It's only for the tongue. There's a false idea that you become very strong by eating meat. It's not necessary. I mean, I, I was raised on meat and, you know, I'm not, I don't look like a heavyweight boxing champion. I'm not. So, uh, here's Vodnarayandas, whose family for generations have, from the time of Lord Brahma, have been vegetarians. So, you know, they're very intelligent by genes. Now, previously their families used that intelligence for studying scripture. Nowadays they work for Bill Gates. He's from Seattle nowadays. But uh, high intelligence. Meat, meat doesn't nourish spiritual intelligence. It's better not to eat meat. Even physically. So please go to the farm. Look after another cow. Yeah, it's horrible what's going on in the slaughterhouses. Anything else, please? Any question? No, please. Please take the mic. Please take the mic. Yeah, a question on meditation. Yeah. Um, what would you describe as the main difference between using an object such as breath awareness uh, as an object of meditation or uh, as using a mantra as an object of meditation? Or is there any real difference? Did anyone have the question? What is the difference between using, was it breath control? Yeah, breath, uh, awareness, of breath. awareness of breath as an object of meditation and using a mantra as an object of meditation. Is there any difference? Well, I'm not going to answer directly the question. I'm going to take it into a broader context. Breath, uh, you spoke of breath awareness in meditation. Now, what is the purpose of meditation? First we should consider this before we can properly answer this. Now, there are two main schools of meditation in Indian cultural history. And that's gone out to China, Sri Lanka, and basically Hindu and Buddhist schools. Uh, the, the Buddhist schools, they follow from what we call the impersonal side, and the other side is the impersonal side. So what's mostly taught as meditation in the Western world is impersonal. That the idea that ultimately we have to, by meditation, we merge into an undefined absolute, we become one, our consciousness becomes one with the oneness of everything. Now, 
This is a big philosophical question, and you'll find it discussed in this Bhagavad Gita, which you, I presume you just purchased. It, it's directly, ah, the question is raised in there, that is it better to meditate on the impersonal absolute, or on the person, Krishna, who is the ultimate being? And Lord Krishna answers that the process of meditation by the impersonal method is very difficult. And... Uh, it's, it can only be taken with a lot of trouble. In the impersonal system, when one is trying to merge one's consciousness with the Absolute, one has to try to be desireless. But it's an impossible conundrum because you have to desire to be desireless. Whereas in personal meditation, it is focused on God, the person. It's devotional which is much easier, because it's natural for the soul to love God. So, we don't actually recommend meditation of either of the kinds that you have said. When we, we have mantras, but we don't meditate in the, in the manner that we're just trying to use the mantra as a system, for, as a means. But rather the mantra is a method of worship. It's, it's not simply that we're, it's something to still the mind and concentrate the mind, but rather the mantra is non-different from God himself. It's God manifest in sound form. And by chanting his name, we, enter, we, we revive our loving relationship with him. So that system of meditation, meditating on the personal form of God, that is also recommended in the Vedic scriptures. That is not recommended for this age. There are different ages of man, and in the first age of man, when people, the whole situation was much more peaceful. So it was, it was more, people's minds were much more peaceful, and people had long lives, a hundred thousand years. So it was much, it was suitable for meditation. It's not suitable in the modern age. It, even if we can find a, a peaceful place, which is not very easy in New York City, it's very difficult to make our mind peaceful. So, in this age, chanting of the names of God, chanting the names of Krishna, which is meditation, but it's meditation on the qualities of Krishna, on the names of Krishna. It's meditation on the person of Krishna. That is recommended. So, I didn't directly answer your question, but I tried to put it into a, a broader context, like I said. Hare Krishna. Any other questions, please? Yeah. We had a couple of already. Um, the concept that God or Krishna is um, is the fullest in in all the ways that we find attractive in terms of knowledge and. You know, no one is as wise as Krishna. No one is more beautiful than Krishna. Um, no one is as famous. You know. Um, can you explain the arguments of renunciation? Well, Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead. He is accepted as such because he possesses all wealth, all fame 
all knowledge, all beauty, all strength, and all renunciation. So sometimes it may be difficult to understand what does it mean that his opulence of renunciation. So the point is that even though he has all ability, which others would, in material life, others would use that to exploit others. People who have strength, people who have power and position, people who have beauty, they use that to, ex to establish themselves over others and exploit them. But Krishna, even though he has all opulences, he doesn't use that to exploit others. He's not attached that I am God and you, you have to do what I say, otherwise I'll smash you. But rather he, he's quite happy to take the position of, the, of being dependent on his devotees. So even though he has all these opulences, it's, he's not just showing them all the time. It's, it's not a, he's not interested in establishing his superiority. He's interested in loving his devotees. That's also manifest in that he's also, um, ontologically speaking, although in terms of love he's dependent on his devotees, but he's not dependent on anyone. So, even though he has all his devotees, he can, if they become, if any of his devotees think that they have become superior to Krishna, or that Krishna is dependent upon him, he can lead them. As he did in the Rasa dance. He left all the gopis who were thinking, now we got Krishna under our control. And Krishna said, no, I'm leaving. So that is his opulence of renunciation. As Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he, even though he was surrounded by loving devotees, because he had more important things to do, he had to preach Krishna consciousness widely, he left them. His opulence of renunciation. Don't worry if you can't understand it all at once, because understanding God is not only through the intelligence. Uh, if you could explain about Swarup, what's the, what is the concept of Swarup? What is the meaning of Swarup? Rup means form and Swarup means own. So Swarup means our own original form or nature. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu described, Jiva Swarup Hari Krishna Nityadas. Our original position is as the servant of Krishna. So every living being has an, ex an unmanifest eternal form for serving Krishna, either as a cow or a young girl or a young boy or an elderly man. Everyone has their way to serve Krishna, their original form. The root which you have, the form which you have now, looks like that of an Indian lady, but that's not your eternal form. Those who are interested, there are many books on Krishna consciousness available over there.
those who are already members of this room are Prabhupada's books, they may be interested to see. Some of the books which I've also written on Prabhupada's order, books about Prabhupada and Krishna consciousness. Yeah, please ask. Do you know... Our, uh, the devotee came to Harrisburg, came. We were supposed to leave at 6 o'clock. He's, there, he's waiting for us. He left to Harrisburg already, so we have to make our own way there. Hey, Krishna. Uh, the prefix San in uh, Sanskrit, Sankirtan, Sanyasa. The prefix San, what does it mean? What does the prefix San mean, as in Sanyas, Sankirtan, Sanskrit? It means complete and perfect. So Sanskrit means perfectly made, perfectly done. It's a perfectly formed language. Sankirtan means complete kirtan, complete glorification. In this context it can also mean Sangha, that many people coming together. And in Sanyas, Nyas means renunciation, Sanyas means complete renunciation. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. I have a suggestion for next year. Have two mics. Is there any at least. Uh, relationship between speak in the mic. and uh, myself? Like, if I'm a, mm -hmm. do you have any idea about that? Like, if I'm something there, would that make me, you know, is there any relationship or like relation? Is there a relationship between my Swarup and myself? You are your Swarup, but due to Maya, you are thinking that that body and mind is yourself. That's not you. You are, your sweat, your own form is that of a servant of Krishna in the spiritual world. But due to Maya, you are thinking that the human body that you are very temporarily in is you. That is not you. So you are your form, and that form which you are presently in, that body is not you, you are eternal. The body is temporary, the material body is temporary. Please read Bhagavad Gita as it is, to understand this. We have to hear it regularly. Srila Prabhupada is always, again and again, emphasizing, without the body, the body is temporary, we are eternal spirit soul, it's very easy to imagine I am this body. If we don't eat, we start to feel, I'm a hungry body. It feels real. But it's not real in the full sense of the term, because it's temporary. Please take, do you have Srila Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita as it is? Do you have Srimad Bhagavatam? Full set? Please take a full set. Read that. Do you have a TV? Okay. I suggest throw out your TV. Get a Srimad Bhagavatam. Study it. It will be better for you, even materially. You'll, you'll be, your mind will not be so confused and disturbed. You have a TV, but you don't have any channels. So sell it, get whatever you'll get. Where's $60? I don't know what you'll get from our TV. 
and get something really valuable. TV just messes up the mind. That's what they're deliberately trying to do. They're deliberately feeding you BS. You all know what that means. Drink Coca-Cola! Don't drink Coca-Cola. Read Srimad Bhagavatam. The first verse of Srimad Bhagavatam. Who can, you know? Can you sing? You can sing? Okay, say it. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Jammadrasya Yatom Vyad Itarathas Chaitesh Vadhyaya Swarat Tene Brahma Vidaya Adhikaviye Mohyantiyak Suryaha Tejo Vari Medam Yatha Yunameo Yatra Trisago Misha Dhamna Svena Sada Nirasta Kuhakam Satyam Taram Bhimahi This is the introduction to Srimad Bhagavatam is a complete overview of the nature of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Jim, anyway, I want to be here for a few weeks and we can discuss this. Briefly we can say, He by which all the universes are manifest, maintained and destroyed, who is directly and indirectly conscious of everything, both in the material world and in the spiritual world, who at the beginning of creation imparted Vedic or imparted knowledge within the heart of the first created being Brahma, who by his illusory potency bewilders even great pious personalities. That bewilderment is like the mirage of water seen on a fire, seen in fire, or land seen within water. Uh, he forever exists. He's eternally existent in his own abode. He is never illusioned. He is never disappointed. He is the supreme object of meditation. And that is Vasudev, Krishna. Bhagavate, the Supreme Lord. So that one verse, that alone is more than a lifetime to try to, many lifetimes to understand what literature is this. And what you get on TV, Tom and Jerry, maybe something a little better also. Even, you know, people think Discovery Channel, what is, it's looking at the material world without any actual understanding of what's going on. It doesn't really help us to know about the borrowings of rodents on the other side of the world. It's not very helpful. Better to find out about He by whom everything is manifest, in whom we exist, on whose existence our existence depends. Better read this literature. So please read Srimad Bhagavatam. It's not a joke. I'm serious. Get rid of your TV and get Srimad Bhagavatam and read it and your life will enter another dimension of understanding higher consciousness. People talk of higher consciousness, but higher consciousness means to understand that person upon whom we are dependent. Not simply in a sentimental manner, but to understand him as he presents himself through scripture.
Yeah, please come and take the mic. Hare Krishna. Please take some books. Please take from there. These are these are not for beginners so much. Beginners books are over there. Introductory books. Please speak into the mantra that you were just discussing. Can we pull out a guide for mantra if a person wanted to? The first verse of Bhagavatam? You mean the first verse of Bhagavatam? Yes. Well, it indicates the Gayatri Mantra, but it's it could be taken as a Gayatri Mantra as much as you can chant it three times daily. That's one of the meanings of Gayatri. But Gayatri Mantra, Brahma Gayatri is a, is a specific mantra, which is not that mantra which I'm not going to say now because it's not meant for public discussion. If there's no more questions, then Hare Krishna will finish here. is not Krishna, but that is the, as Lord Krishna himself describes in Bhagavad Gita, Brahmano hi pratishtaham, that impersonal Brahman is, Krishna is the basis of that. The specific verse in Srimad Bhagavatam is, Bhavanti tat tatvavidas, what's the verse? Bhavanti tat tatvavidas, tatvam yajkyanam adzayam, brahmneti paramatmeti, Bhagavanity Shabyate. That Tatva, Param Tatva, the topmost existent entity, for what there's no English translation of Tatva, but I'll try that, is understood in three aspects the formless absolute, all pervading formless absolute, the localized form of God, or is present in everyone's heart, and the original form who resides in his own abode. So the impersonal absolute is another aspect of Krishna, but the highest aspect, which is not different from the impersonal absolute, but is the 
aspect that we can have a relationship with is Krishna, the person. Now, we just quoted this, Jiva Swarup Vai Krishna Nityadas. Our Swarup, our original position, is as the servant of Krishna. So, to concentrate on the impersonal aspect of Krishna is a denial of our service to him, which is unnatural for the jiva and not pleasing to Krishna. So the impersonal aspect is there, but attraction to the impersonal aspect over the personal aspect is not the proper position for the jiva. Therefore, those who deny the personality of Krishna, they are condemned. So, Hare Krishna. Should we go? Go, 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 go. Should we go? Hare Krishna. Everyone please say Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. You can also say, you don't lose anything. Hare Krishna. 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 Hare Krishna